You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, this is Alyssa Davies from Mixed Up Money, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. My mother followed my father. He had just finished medical school and he was drafted to Vietnam and he was stationed in Thailand as a physician. So my mother illegally followed him to Thailand and she had a chemistry degree and she taught high school chemistry at the International School of Bangkok. And she did that for a year until she got kicked out of the country. After the war, she followed him to Chicago where he did his residency And they built a life together. My mom did jobs here and there. She would edit for scientific journals, but mostly she stopped working and brought up her three kids. Eventually, as we all got older, she went to business school and she was on the cusp of getting her CPA degree when my father passed away. Now, my mom had never handled the money before, which is really funny because she was getting an MBA but a family member had to teach her how to write a check after my father died. This was in 1980. She had never done that before. So whereas my mom grew up with all of these gendered behaviors and stereotypes about money, I didn't. I grew up with a female head of household, and I saw her decide the financial direction that our family would take. Fast forward to today, 2020, we are on the cusp of the U.S. having its first female vice president. But I'm wondering if we are still holding tight to these gender-specific financial stereotypes and behaviors, maybe even stronger than ever. Alyssa Davies is a freelance writer, founder of the award-winning Mixed Up Money blog, and writer of a recent book, The 100-Day Financial Goal Journal, Alyssa, was it the Plutus Awards, right? 2019, Best Canadian Personal Finance Blog? Yep, that's the one. It was That was a big year for me, too. This is the Earn and Invest podcast. It used to be called the What's Up Next podcast, and we won for Best New Personal Finance Podcast. So I remember very fondly that award ceremony. I assume you were there in person. I actually missed it. I had gone to FinCon the previous year, and for some reason, decided not to go that year. So best Canadian personal finance blog, you're obviously from Canada. This is November 6, 2020. It's a very big time in the United States right now. Are you paying attention to the presidential elections? I think it's impossible not to. It doesn't really matter where you are, you're going to be impacted. The reason why I bring up this election is Current President Donald Trump is famous for bringing up all sorts of stereotyped ideas. And certainly in his speeches, he says some really interesting things. And I wanted to read you a statement he made recently on the campaign trail. He said, and he was talking to a crowd, and he was specifically talking to the women in the crowd. And he said, We're getting your husbands back to work, and everybody wants it, and the cure can never be worse than the problem itself. I kind of shuddered when I heard that. And I was wondering how that that rubbed you, that statement. Oh, I remember hearing that as well. It was it was interesting because mostly the people that ended up leaving the workforce were women statistically. 
everyone who has children or has a family that they need to take care of, it's typically the woman who ends up stepping back so that they can watch their kids. You know, it's an interesting point. This pandemic and recession are a really interesting lens to start looking at gender-specific financial behavior and not just behavior, but gender-specific circumstances. As you were saying, this recession has really affected women and made it clear that there is a very specific difference in our workplace today, not just in the United States, but around the world. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, you know, personally, I am the breadwinner. So I can't imagine if I had to step back from work to watch my daughter, because that just wouldn't work for us financially. We obviously have prepared a lifestyle that makes sense for us to be able to live on one income, regardless of whose it is. But why would I want to take that step back when I'm doing well in my career? doesn't make sense for us. I'm interested that you use that term breadwinner, and we will get back to that a little bit later. But let's talk about the genesis of some of your writing at Mixed Up Money. Some of the first lines of copy, actually, when you go to your website is, Mixed Up Money is a safe space for women who care about money. I'm wondering why you use the word safe space. What was your thinking behind using that term specifically? Well, I think when I first started to get a little bit interested in money, it was intimidating when I started to do my research because I couldn't find anyone that I could relate to. And then one big Google search, like I spent a whole day searching for anyone that I could find that would somehow relate to my situation. And I finally found a female blogger and it inspired me immediately. And I realized in that moment, you know, I think a lot of the reason that women stay so far away from finance is because it's very male centric. And a lot of the times when you go to a bank or anything like that, it's you're speaking with a male and it's intimidating and it's uncomfortable. And they oftentimes don't take you seriously. They really don't. You're talking about how internally it feels to be a woman talking about money. But then there's the also external atmosphere, which I think is... So clear, for instance, in Donald Trump's statement that patriarchal, you as a woman should be worried about your husband's well-being, and I'm helping your husband, so that should make me a good candidate. There's really a dichotomy, right? It's what society tells women, and then it's how women feel internally themselves. Yeah, it's always that kind of back and forth battle with fear whether you're scared to talk about it in person or you're scared to actually just take those steps on your own because you've probably been taught your whole life that it's not a big deal. Someone's going to take care of you. When in reality, regardless of your personal finance situation at home, you need to be able to take care of yourself. It doesn't matter if you have a partner. It doesn't matter if you have someone that's always been there to kind of track that for you because something could change in an instant, similar to what happened with your mom. It just is out of your control completely. Do you remember growing up with that stereotype yourself, getting some of those messages as you were a little girl that, oh, if you just find the right husband, someone will be there to take care of you? Oh, yeah. I think that's always kind of a theme as you grow up. But it was similar in my household. My dad was definitely the one that brought home most of our money. And my mom just worked as kind of a part-time job. But she actually took a majority of her a career off to be a stay-at-home mom. And I've had that discussion with her in the future. And we've talked, you know, I wonder what life would have been like if you didn't have to step back and you could have stayed in your career because you miss out on so much earning potential when you stay at home. It's a natural transition to talk about this term breadwinner after what you just said, because you had mentioned that your mom stayed home to take care of the kids. You had also mentioned that you yourself are the breadwinner. The term is a little problematic because when women take on the breadwinner role, it seems like in society, they're still expected to do the caregiving full-time also. Yes. I actually wrote a post specifically about the term breadwinner because I'm with you. I don't like it. I just don't know if there's another word right now that works for that specific term, but I don't like that word because it implies that the only way you take care of your family is by earning money. And that's so far from the truth. There are a million other things, like you just said, taking care of your kids, keeping up the house. There's just so many other things that matter to make your family work and earning money doesn't make you the breadwinner. That's just one part of a relationship. 
It definitely seems to me, and one of the problems that I have with the term as I read your blog post in preparing for this is that we like to talk about equality, uh, this idea that men and women can be equal, either a man can make more money or a woman can make more money, but we don't talk a lot about equity, this idea that we need to give all stakeholders what they need. And so if we say, great women, you can be the breadwinner, you can make more money, then we also have to say, then you're not going to be expected to do some of the things at home because being the breadwinner requires that you spend your time on career. And that, that's the part that I think we've been really bad at. Yeah, I think it in part is how it's again, the stereotypes of how we're raised. Like I think growing up as a female, my family was really good at, you know, explaining the things that we should be doing as women, you know, like chores are different for my brother than they were for me. Like he would do a lot more of the outdoor chores and I would do a lot more of the indoor chores, things like that really do stick with you. And you don't even realize probably as a parent, how much you're kind of playing into that stereotype. And those stereotypes go much further than things like chores and careers. It it really goes a lot into your financial thinking. When you describe your site, at one point you call it a judgment-free zone or you can get judgment-free financial content. Did you feel very judged when you decided to take this deep dive into your finances? I don't think I felt judged for being interested in finance. I think a lot of people praise you when you finally start to enter the community. It's more so the feeling of whatever you're doing with your money, something is always wrong. And I find that to be so critical. I just think that there are a million different ways to do money. It doesn't have to be one size fits all. It can't be. Everyone is so different. We all grew up in different places and we all have different upbringings and those things truly impact how you manage your money when you grow. So I don't like to say, you know, completely cut yourself off from the things you like so you can achieve financial independence or you're never going to be able to buy a home because you haven't been doing this stuff as you're young. I think it doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter what gender you are. You're going to get where you need to be. It just might take longer for you than it does for someone else. And I don't want people to feel judged or scared to start taking care of their money, because that is a huge barrier, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah. And a lot of people feel shame, especially about their spending habits. Like that's a real common thing. It has nothing to do with your gender. It's just that people feel shame about going out and buying a coffee or, or sometimes splurging on themselves when it feels necessary. Yeah. At the beginning, when I started the blog, I had that mindset. I was paying off my debt. So I was super frugal and I was like, don't ever buy lunch. You should be saving all of your money. Don't ever do any of this stuff. And then as I've gotten used to learning about money, I realized, you know, that's really unfair of me to say, and I actually enjoy spending my money and there's a way to do it responsibly. And there's a way to do it. So you can still save enough money for your retirement and hit all of the financial goals you have. In fact, you have gone as far on your website to say that we don't preach frugality, right? Like frugality is not a key concept per se in your message on mixed up money. No, not at all. Like, I think that we all have little frugal habits that we do. I have tons of them and and everyone does, but that doesn't mean that you just stop enjoying your life and stop using the money that you earned to do things that you enjoy. It's okay to have hobbies that cost money. Those kind of things I feel like aren't talked about enough in this kind of space. Let's transition to your journey to thinking about personal finance. You started Mixed Up Money in 2015 and you say it was a time in which the only things that existed in your life were nightclubs and clothing stores and debt. Before you got on this path, do you think you were on the wrong track? Were you doing it wrong up to this point? Yeah, absolutely. I was I was just kind of talking about the gender portion of it. I had just graduated from university and I had started my first job and I got like a really good job somehow uh, <laughs> right out of the get-go. It wasn't a great salary because I didn't know that you could negotiate at that point. I just took the first job that came my way. And in that job, I was just barely making ends meet because I was spending recklessly and I didn't think it mattered what I was doing with my money. And things all came crashing down on me when my boss at the time started sexually harassing me. 
in the office, out of the office. And I had no way of leaving that job. I had no savings. I needed that paycheck to pay my bills. It was eating at me emotionally. And it was just, that was kind of a huge turning point for me. And like, I need to do something. I need to make a change because I'm stuck. And if I don't take control of my finances, I'll just be here forever. And I can't be, it's, it's hurting me emotionally. That reminds me so much of a conversation I was having with a friend recently. I was off the cuff mentioning that I get lots of pitches for this podcast and almost all of them are white men. And she said to me, she's like, look, there are a lot of problems with all of the hubris and arrogance going on out there. But she said, sometimes I wish that women and people of color could would walk around with as much confidence as white men tend to. And that reminds me a lot of your story. You kind of mentioned that at the time you had no idea that you could go for a high salary job or what you were worth. You weren't really negotiating, especially at the beginning of your career from a place of strength. Yeah, not at all. I, I kind of knew, like I had so much confidence with the role and I knew that I was the right person for the role. But as far as the financials went, I was like, I, I just didn't think about it. I was like, this sounds like an amazing salary. I've been serving previous to this. So any kind of paycheck sounds great to me. But I ended up making about the same as I, I was serving because I didn't negotiate for my worth. It's funny. You know, I've heard it said before, if you have a job description of 10 points and you hand that to a male candidate, they'll look at it and see if they can do three of those 10 things. They'll say, oh yeah, I can do this. And if you take that same job description and give it to a female candidate and she sees that she can only do seven of the 10, she'll say, oh, maybe I'm not ready for this position. And it's totally a mindset shift, which I think is definitely very much a gender stereotype. Absolutely. And as soon as I realized that, I do. I apply for a ton of jobs that I'm not qualified for. I often just apply just to keep myself like motivated and just like do the interviews. I think it's a good practice and it's good to keep you kind of connected to what's going on currently in your industry. But I've always negotiated ever since I had that job because I was like, I'm never going to sacrifice my time if I'm not going to get paid what I'm worth again, especially if it's that mentally exhausting because every job is emotionally draining. And so you that's one of the reasons you need to negotiate. Let's talk about that mindset shift, because back in 2015, you kind of described yourself as this club-going person who spent a lot. But since that time, in the last five years, you've doubled your income, you've paid off all your debt, you've got married, you bought a house, you had a kid you mentioned that you built that confidence. How did you flip the mindset? How did you escape some of those stereotypes that you grew up with? The first thing I did was I just started reading. I just let myself fall into this personal finance community. I was lucky enough to meet a lot of amazing people that had the same mindset. And that was when it all changed because up until that point, I only knew people that had the same lifestyle as me. And when you're surrounded by those people, that's the same lifestyle you live. Um, so when I met other people that were interested in money, I was like, wow, I don't have to do this alone. You know, there are a ton of people that actually care about this stuff and they're making a huge impact in their lives. And I don't want to be stuck paycheck to paycheck for the rest of my life. So that was the huge shift is changing the people that I connected to. Tell me the importance of a female role model at that stage in your life, as opposed to what a lot of people find, especially what they found five or 10 years ago, is if you look to personal finance, you're going to, again, find mostly white males as the stereotypical writers and coaches. Yeah. Well, uh, the first person I found that I was in love with her content was Bridget Casey. She's from Money After Graduation. She's also based in the same city as me. Um, and I went for coffee with her and I just couldn't believe how confident she was. It was unreal to see someone who cared that much about money and that had that much confidence. And I was like, I could be like this. You know, we have so much in common and I'm just a little bit younger than her, but why can't I do all of this stuff? And then about like a month later, I went into the bank with my 
we were just boyfriend and girlfriend at the time. And the man who we were meeting with was only acknowledging my boyfriend. And I went out of my way to pull the conversation back to me every single time because I was like, no, I have the answer for you here. And I have the answer for you again here. So like, let's divert this conversation to the person who's asking the questions because I'm asking the questions and you're answering to someone else. And that kind of moment, I was like, okay, I don't think these people know as much as me. I think it's, it's that kind of fake it till you make a thing and I can do the same thing. And so I did. Can you imagine having that confidence before you had seen someone else do it that way? Like back in 2015, when this all started, could you imagine having that confidence to pull the banker's attention back to you and say, no, 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 wait, I have the answers here. No, definitely not. I think you need to kind of find someone that gives you that confidence and gives you that information because information is how I started to feel confident is just actually having the knowledge and being able to share that because then you can find you realize when someone's telling you something that doesn't make sense because typically if you don't know the content you're just like "Mm, yeah I guess I have to believe you because I don't know Let's talk a little bit about the hurdles women face when they're at the beginning of their career and they're thinking about the personal finances you mentioned this idea that there weren't a lot of female role models for you to look up to. You've also mentioned, for instance, wages. Women tend to accept a much lower wage or don't apply for jobs that might be a little bit out of reach. Are there other major hurdles that young women face kind of coming into the workplace? I think the biggest one that I've always dealt with and still continue to deal with to this day is just getting and earning respect. I think it's a little bit harder for us to earn respect from our male peers. I think you need to go above and beyond to show them what you can do. Whereas I think oftentimes, if even just comparing to my husband's experience, he'll enter a new job and just immediately be respected. Whereas I have to go the extra mile. Another thing that you've talked about before on your website is this idea of being perfect. Do you think for young women, there's a lot of stress about perfection and not living up to either a stereotype or an image they have of themselves? I think so. I think, I think I feel that pressure a lot and it comes in the form of imposter syndrome. I think like that's a really common term these days is just feeling like you're never going to be good enough, even though you have all of the skills that you need to do that job. It's like this is again, it's a mindset. It's well, you know, I don't think that I'm good enough for this job. So I'm not even going to bother applying, even though you could be the best candidate and someone else who doesn't have as much experience as you will get that job. And it's just like learning how to find that confidence within yourself again, because I feel like that's an ongoing thing in life is every once in a while, you just start to feel that creeping in like, Oh, I don't know if I'm capable of doing this. And you just have to fight back constantly. It's just that constant reassurance that you have to be able to find internally because you won't often find it externally. Do you think there's also that stress to be perfect outside the workplace? Like you almost have to make an excuse for the fact that you're a professional by doing everything right at home too. Oh yes. Oh my God. As a mom, it's unbelievable pressure that I totally put on myself. No one else is really putting that pressure on. I feel like I constantly have to be ensuring that my daughter has the best education, the best meals made every single night. And I have to be the one doing it. I have to cut everything into that perfect little flower shape so that she enjoys her meal and just the little things like that. And I'm like, why am I putting so much pressure on myself to do this? No one is putting this here. I am doing it to myself. It's that superwoman phenomenon, right? You have to be the best at your job right? Especially because no one expects you to, right? So you have to go there and outperform, but then you also have to go home and be the perfect house mother and go to all of the school meetings and all of the baseball games and have everything together. And I used to think talking to people that that was something that a lot of women put on themselves. On the other hand, I've started to notice that society does that a little bit too. You know, the typical story is a woman executive decides to take an afternoon off to go see her son play baseball. And it's kind of frowned upon. On the other hand, if a male executive takes the afternoon to off to go see his son play baseball, people kind of say, Oh, what a good father you are. 
And yeah. So there's like this major double standard. I thought the perfection was internal, but I think society does a little bit of that too. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the same as like, oh, you know, your husband changed one diaper. Congrats. <laughs> it's like, well, <laughs> there's a lot more that goes on. But on the flip side of it too, like I get really frustrated when I go to events these days and people are like, well, who's, where's your daughter? And I'm like, well, where do you think? Like my, my husband's home with her and they're like, well, is he okay? And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, of course he's okay. I think it's, it goes both ways a lot of the time, but I think more for women, it's, it's the guilt. That's something that weighs heavily on me all the time is because I work three jobs. I always feel like I should be spending more time with my daughter, but also I want to be a role model for her. I want her to know that she can do all the things that she wants to do. And that being a mom doesn't hold you back from doing those things. Uh, because that's kind of the impression I had growing up is that once you become a mom, that's it. And I don't want my daughter to see that as the be all end all. You mentioned guilt, especially when it comes to the workplace and what you're doing at home. I'm also wondering, is there a guilt associated with paying attention to money? Is it's almost like not something we should be doing? We're being too self-indulgent. Is there a guilt there too? Yeah, I definitely don't spend as much money on myself since I've had a, a kid. It's it's always going to be about them, right? You want to be able to save as much as you possibly can for their future. And in part, that means you sacrifice some things that you love. But I've also come a long way with that. It's been She's only two. So in the last two years, I've been like just starting to let myself do the things that I used to love because I don't have to lose all of those things. But yeah, it's again, it's, it's an internal battle. Like you have to let yourself work through those things. They don't just immediately go away. I've done a lot of work to combat those gender stereotypes so that I can be happy with who I am. A lot of it is about having a healthy relationship with money. And I've, I've seen you talk about that on your blog too, is, is forming these good feelings around money that are help build us up as opposed to tear us down. Yeah. Money is so emotional. And I think a lot of people do realize that, but they don't know to the extent because if you're not tracking your money and if you don't know what you're spending on, you don't know how you feel when you spend that money. I like to write about my money. Like I don't track every dollar, but I write like, how was I feeling today? And what did I buy? If I wasn't feeling good, then I probably spent money on something that wasn't essential. And I've learned that because I know those patterns and those trends, I can dial back or I know how to control them now. Whereas most people just lean into those uh, emotional days and they just let themselves go. And that's, I think, when it becomes kind of dangerous with your finances. In the first half of the show, Alyssa and I talk about how money becomes emotional. After the break, we discuss what role it plays in relationships. But first, this episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Do you ever wish you invested early in some of the best-performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020? Our crowd investors were, and now you can join them in what's next. With our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing like Beyond Meat or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. 
Professional VC research identifies promising companies and funds across a range of sectors, stages, and global locations. Our crowd is investing in medical technology, breakthroughs in ag tech and food production, and solutions in the multi-billion dollar robotic industry, as well as so much more. You can learn more and get in early at rcrowd.com slash EAI. If you're interested in investing, you need to join our crowd. The R Crowd account is free. Just go to OURCROWD.com slash EAI. Money and emotions are tightly tied together. And I think there's probably no more place so than when you're talking about money within a relationship. You do a quite a bit of teaching. In fact, I think you have a course about how to talk about money within a relationship. What are some of the pitfalls that people fall into when they're trying to discuss with a spouse or a future spouse their financial situations? Yeah, I think typically a lot well, the main cause of relationships failing is money. It's financial infidelity. It's not telling people when you're buying certain things and then and then they find out about it later, which just happened to one of my friends. Like it just it's so much more common than people realize. Or it's not being able to come to an agreement on a huge life milestone, like a wedding or like having a kid because there are so many expenses that come with that that sometimes you can disagree on like childcare or just like where you're going to raise them are you going to raise them near your parents are you going to live in a different city those things actually are directly related to your money and a lot of people don't realize that every decision we make impacts our money and that is particularly important in relationships so how do people get past that without without giving us your whole course here? What are some of the key ideas that you can use to help yourself kind of move forward in that conversation? Yeah, one of the biggest things that I found is that you need to get to know your person's money story. Like what was their upbringing? How did their parents deal with money? Because a lot of the times that actually is how they manage their own money. Like if their parents were uh, never talked about money or weren't ever doing well financially, that might be a sore spot for them. We talk about, you know, how can you get past those sore spots by actually just acknowledging that they exist. And maybe that's just not something you talk about until you're ready. And then we just go through how you can actually manage your money as a team. It doesn't have to be combined finances like the typical mom and dad share credit card. It can be you guys completely keep your money separate. I'm married. I've been married for four years. We don't keep any of our money together. We have one joint credit card and one joint savings account. And that's it. Everything else is separate. And I think that's okay. And I think a lot of couples don't really realize that it's not, again, the one size fits all. There's a lot of ways to work your money as a team. Do you think it's more difficult in your situation where the woman is the breadwinner or where the woman makes more, at least financially? Does that complicate things? I think it can, but I know a lot of of my friends who have like had awkward conversations with their partner when they first started dating and they're like, oh, you make more than me. Some people don't like that. And I think that's silly. We have such good conversations about it. It doesn't matter. Again, it's like we are a team when we make decisions. All of the financial goals we have in place, we made together. We don't do anything really apart anyways. So why does it matter? You know, we, we just need that as a family. We're a family regardless of who makes more money. You wrote a book called The 100-Day Financial Gold Journal, and you described it as a less aggressive look at your finances. And one thing you say is that you don't do a huge amount of time talking about substantial numbers. In other words, it sounds like there's not a lot of math involved. Why was it important for you to clarify that in your description? I think that's one of the biggest deterrents for people is they're scared to actually get to know where they're sitting financially. Because if you're not constantly budgeting or if you don't know your income and like how much you spend every month, then you're afraid. A lot of people are afraid to even log into their bank accounts to see how much they spent this month. And that's not what this journal does. It doesn't intimidate you into like being better with your finances because that is what a lot of experts tell you to do. It's more like, Let's look at the emotional side again of your money and how you manage it. And let's see how we can use that to control your financial goal. 
And tell me what kind of feedback have you been getting from the book, especially right now during kind of the COVID pandemic and recession? How are people responding to that type of information? I have had some really, really great conversations with people who do it. One girl uh, that bought it is actually already on her second copy, which is so cool because I didn't think anyone would buy the book other than my mom. Uh, And she said it's been great for her and her husband. They did it together. They got to know what their goal was and they decided that they were going to pay one of their student loans off and they were able to do it still in the pandemic. And she found it really helpful just because it helped them cut back a little bit more during a time when it's scary to spend money right now. How has the pandemic affected your core message? How does it affect your readers? Has this changed the game, so to speak, or is it business as usual? It's changed 100%. I I was never judgmental to begin with, but I find that even more so I'm kind of like, I myself am not as strict this year. I've spent way more money than I usually do just because I'm stressed or I'm trying to keep my toddler busy when we can't go out as frequently as we used to. And for that alone, I'm like, I'm not going to regret anything I do this year. It is a different year. And that's okay to accept that and just get by this year. Almost you'd think faced with economic insecurity, we would button down more, but maybe the emotional response is to be a little bit more loose and relaxed. And maybe on some level, that's not bad. Yeah, I think it totally depends on on what your situation is like right now. If you've lost your job, you have no choice. You have to cut back, but you also don't want to just completely hide and you know be alone and not enjoy yourself because that's dangerous when you have no work. You're just sitting at home. And again, I think the emotional side of money is is really what what makes the difference. It's like learn the behaviors and get to know what's best for you and your finances. We started this conversation and we touched on this idea that the recession was particularly hard for women especially in their caregiving role. How do you think women will come out of this pandemic? How has it changed their financial futures? I think it's, I would kind of relate it similar for a lot of people as to having a child. You lose out on a year of earning potential. It might be different in the States, but here I took 12 months or 10 months on maternity leave. And I still think about that all the time. I'm like, that is one whole year of earning potential that I've now lost and I will have to make up for. And I think that's what a lot of women are going to end up facing. As of today, 2020, how do you think we're doing with the gender wage gap and the glass ceiling? Do you think we're making headway? I'd like to be optimistic, but I just don't know. I feel like at this point, we should still be doing more than we're doing right now. And I think there's a lot of work to be done. I think it's way more talked about and people actually understand that it does exist. But is it is it happening across every single workplace? I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah, life and current events have really shown a spotlight on the inequities of our societies. The Black Lives Matter movement, especially what female women of color have faced during this pandemic and just kind of the social upheaval that we've all been facing. It's still hard to tell whether it's moving the ball forward or backward. I think certainly the fact that we're so much more aware because of what's happening right now will hopefully open everyone's eyes to the fact that things need to change and improve. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just more of these statistics being shared helps. I know that Black women are statistically the higher earners in a household. And so the fact that they might be taken out of the workplace this year is extremely difficult for those families. And there's just, there's a lot of interesting statistics that are just finally coming out that make you go, okay, we really need to do something. But again, it's like, for me, I always battle with that. How, what am I going to do? How can I help? And so this year I've just been donating. That's just made me feel like this is the one thing I can do that might help us close the gap. And I definitely encourage people that if they can, that's, that's something that you can do as an individual. It's a very salient point because 
if we think of women as being the sole wage earner or at least the major wage earner in a family, and yet the gender wage gap is still very apparent, we're really bankrupting our own people. And there's just, it doesn't speak well for our society, nor the future of our families, if we don't give these major wage earners the ability to do just as well as anyone else within our employment system. So I think it's really important that we kind of figure this one out, uh, because that is where our society is going. I think the percentage of female, quote unquote, breadwinners is higher than ever. Yes, it is, for sure. Well, it's been great having this conversation with you. I think it's a really important conversation. I'm going to close this episode the way I close every episode by asking you what's up next in your life and where can people find you if they want to learn more? For sure. I have a lot in the works right now. I'm potentially working on my second book, so you'll hear lots about that if it does end up happening. And right now I'm just focusing on building up my Instagram following. So come follow me over there at mixed up money. I draw a lot of money illustrations that are more inspirational just to keep, keep things light. I think this year has been intense enough. So I'm here to have a little bit more fun this year and just keep everyone interested in money without going overboard. And the website is mixed up money. Is that mixedupmoney.com? Yes, it is. And tell us, give us a teaser. What is the second book going to be about? It'd potentially be about Perfect timing for right now, how to prepare for any emergency. Ah, always a good topic. And certainly when you, you know, the 101 course on money is how to pay off your debt and do an emergency fund and kind of stabilize your life. But the 202 class is about dealing with the changes that we all face. And most of them are unexpected. So Definitely makes sense as your second book to talk about how to deal with unexpected situations. Yes, absolutely. And 2020 has proven that time and time again. Yes, 2020 has been a doozy. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, I'd like to thank Alyssa Davies from Mixed Up Money. That's a wrap. If you are enjoying the conversations we're having on the Earn and Invest podcast, I just wanted to remind you about the Facebook group. Go to facebook.com slash group slash earn and invest. And there we have conversations very similar to the podcast, but they are going on 24-7 all the time. We discuss politics. We discuss economics. We discuss finances just about everything. And the conversations are led by you our community. So go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash group slash earn and invest. We'd love to see you there. And so you can become part of our earn and invest community. One thing we have been talking about there is the goings on in Washington, D.C. There obviously has been a major political election, as well as what happened at the Capitol. Over the next few weeks, you'll hear a plethora of voices discussing what's been going on in our country. Right now, we're going to talk to Alex Scott Feliz. He is one of our regulars here at Earn and Invest, and I like to do these extra segments with him because he has an interesting take on politics and what's going on in our world. But again, this is the beginning of a conversation that will span multiple weeks, either in the podcast itself, in the Facebook group, or in these second segments. So I'm excited to have Alex Scott Feliz on the show again. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. So I am back here with my man, Alex Scott Feliz, writer at Broke is a Choice, podcaster at Military to Millionaire, owner of a new mic. You're sounding pretty good, my friend. How you doing? (laughs) Thank you. It's very good to see you. I am excellent. I always like when we get together and chat. I love talking to you. We are going to talk about the Capitol. We are going to talk about the presidential election. I know what you're thinking. All I need is another white dude on the podcast to talk about these kind of things. But what I found about Alex Scott Felice is he has this innate ability to tell you exactly what he's thinking, to be crass at times, but to be incredibly thoughtful. Him and I don't always agree, but I will guarantee we always have a good conversation. So it's wonderful to have you back. Thank you. Yes, I try to be, 
I try not to be polarizing in my ideas. I think my ideas are usually reasonable. I try to be polarizing in the way that I deliver them. And uh, I think that's a good, that's a good mix for me. <laughs> yeah, you, you definitely get a reaction, but I've never seen you back away from a fight. And most of the time, whoever gets annoyed at something you say, by the time you're done talking to them, is like, okay, I see your point and, and isn't, isn't annoyed anymore. So that's kind of common. Well, I don't like to play uh, the sides that much. So people, people like to get mad about politics. They pick their sides. They like to battle. That's all okay. But I try to play the game a little bit differently. So, And, and were you under the weather a little while ago? I uh, tested positive for COVID-19 on December 28th. And I did my, my quarantine and I am, I am unstoppable, baby. Yeah. How was it? Was it, was it bad for you or not so bad? It was worse than I thought in a different way. So I actually didn't feel that sick, um, you know, like stuffy headaches, fevers, chills, you know, a little of that stuff, but like not really bad. What I had, which was actually a little scary was I had fatigue and I'm not a guy that gets fatigued easily. So even when I'm sick, I'm like, I feel like ass, but let me get up and move a little bit and try to like fight through this a little bit. I- I've never felt where I was planted to the couch for four days straight with zero will to live. And I was like, you know what, if this thing takes me out, I'm not even call- getting up to call the ambulance. I-, I-, I was too tired to text. I was too tired to think of a text. And so um, that was the one that really caught me off guard was the, it sucked my will. Yeah, I've heard that COVID can just take you out. We are going to talk about what happened on the Capitol. And I'm definitely interested in getting your opinions, because if you guys remember, Alex was on after taking pictures, shooting a bunch of the protests earlier in the year. But before we even get to that, let's talk about the presidential election. Were you surprised by the outcome? Um, yes and no. I mean, I was surprised when Donald Trump won the first time. So I think in, uh, one of the things that I definitely learned along the way um, is do not underestimate Donald Trump. I think that's a mistake to underestimate him. So I was in the position where I didn't think he was going to win, but I didn't think it would have been the first time. There was some reasonable uh, expectations that he was going to do worse this time. He had lost some political capital, but it was fairly close in the end, as far as I'm concerned. It's debatable. You know, the word close is debatable, but um, yeah, I was not that surprised that he lost, but yeah. Did you feel okay about the security of the elections? Did you, when you saw this, you're like, okay, these elections happened the way they were supposed to, or did you feel like something fraudulent when it happened? I, it's a balance. Um, the, the Homeland Security came out and said it was the most secure election that we've ever had. And Bill Barr came out pretty quickly after and said, there's no fraud. So once I saw those two, I was, I knew that the fraudulent, the claims of fraud were largely, um, they are manufactured. And to be fair, they were manufactured back in 2015. Donald Trump was saying that the elections were fraud. And he was always going to say that when it didn't go his way. And that's part of a, in my opinion, and probably even outside the scope of this, even though we are talking about this, that is part of a larger play strategy that Donald Trump enacts. So when I saw that Trump lost, I have to admit, part of me said, oh boy, things aren't going to go well after this. Did you have that same sinking feeling? I mean, the Capitol didn't surprise me a lot. When I saw I, that he lost. Yeah. Donald Trump told uh, everybody back in 2015 that he would not accept the outcome of that election if it didn't go his way. So I 100% expected this actually, and we aren't done yet. This is going, I, this is a good, there's a good chance this is going to continue to get worse. Uh, so no, I'm not uh, surprised. In fact, if somebody was surprised by the thing at the, ele- at the Capitol, I'm, I don't, I don't think they've been paying attention for the last four years. Yeah, I'm 100% in agreement with you. I have certain worries about inauguration and thereafter. Let's talk about when you heard about the Capitol itself. What were your first impressions as you're seeing the news come in? It's hard to remember exactly. I remember thinking, I saw the videos and I thought to myself, well, they're not going to get anything done. This is not going to actually work. Uh, Not to say that it doesn't matter. That is not my... I'm not saying that it doesn't matter or that it shouldn't be a worrisome event, but I watched these, when I saw the monkey in the freaking clown (laughs) face, I hate to laugh about, I hate to laugh about it, but it does make you laugh. Yeah. Well, yeah. I was like, oh, well they they didn't send the serious people because a serious militia that was here to take over a government would show up and they would look terrifying and they would be terrifying. 
these knuckleheads were uh, a couple of opportunists. And uh, again, I'm not displaying downplaying the um, possibility of a threat, but you know, you can go look, go look at uh, how Dick, uh, how revolutions, how governments get taken over. It's not a thousand people in, you know, in covered in garb. It's, it's, a, it's small militia and it's strategic and they may have had weapons and bombs and potential to do harm. Um, but I, I think that, this in itself in an event, I said, well, they evacuated the Capitol. There's nothing to get except the building, which is not, I mean, that's not how you get the government. You don't just walk up and, you know, even if you planted the white house, it's like, that's not how the, that's how the thing works. So uh, they were going to need a lot more. They didn't get any politicians. They didn't really get the building. They were cleared up by the end of the day. I mean, the people in Portland had a, had a more effective takeover um, than this. So I saw this, I did not, like you said, I did not, it was not surprising to me that something was, that something happened. Um, and it's not actually surprising to me that it didn't go well, because in my opinion, this was the first attempt and the first attempt never goes well. I definitely want to get back to that idea, but you mentioned Portland and I feel like I have to go there first. In your mind, is there a moral equivalence between what happened in Portland and what happened on the Capitol? Uh, well, that's a hard, what do you mean moral equivalent? Well, a lot of people are arguing what I see out there in Facebook and the media is you're enraged, especially people are saying to liberals, they're saying you're enraged by what happened at the Capitol, but you're not enraged by what happened at Portland. To them, there is a moral equivalence there. I think that that, that I think that's just their spin to, to, to absolve themselves of responsibility of this event. There's nothing to get in Portland except Portland. Now, if you live in Portland, you should be upset. But if you get capital, if you get if you get the government, then you get everybody. So the stakes are much different. And so to make an equivalent about the actions taking over something, it's like, well, not the things that you take over are not all the same. And so I think the tendency would be for people who supported this type of behavior, they're going to absolve themselves of responsibility by playing the but what about ism. Oh, well, in Portland, you know, it's like, dude, this is not, is it false equivalency? Kind of, but, um, you know, I didn't, it's straw man, right? It's like, oh, you liberals did X. It's like, dude, that's not a reasonable argument. And I'll tell you what else. And I made a post about this yesterday. Um, The us versus then game, the only people that win are the politicians. So when you're sitting there going, oh, you liberals or, oh, you conservatives, I'm like, they're taking over the government while you guys are bickering. So, and that's what they want. They, excuse me, I don't want to be a, uh, you know, those who would have you cause destruction in uh, your own country and blame it on your fellow human are winning. So do you, do you think there is a kind of more malignant force that's pulling the strings from above? Uh, no, not, I mean, look, they, they showed Donald Trump and his son, and Rudy Giuliani, 30 minutes before the thing, and they spun everybody up and they said, go take this thing. Um, you're a patriot. If you do, we have to fight. Blah, blah, blah. By the way, I'll be back here. I mean, it, it, have you heard of Hanlon's razor? I've heard of Occam's razor. Yeah. Hanlon's razor. Never attribute to malice what could more easily be attributed to stupidity. Got it. Oh, I like that. I like that. And so uh, I'm not into this like, oh, the whole world is orchestrated by this thing. It's like, no, that guy doesn't want to lose the election. He tried to do it legally. It didn't work. And he tried somewhat and in a very, in my opinion, a very strategic way to say, well, I tried just hard enough to see if it might work. But if it doesn't, well, I didn't really go out there and do anything. So it's a really good uh, absolution of culpability. Let's talk about breaking the seal, right? So this was what you called the first attempt and interestingly enough, I think there it looked very benign, especially from the original footage we saw. As time goes on, we find out that there was some real bludgeoning of a security officer, some kind of bad things that happened. How much more likely do you think it is now, since this event has happened, that there will be a larger scale event in the future? I think the media has actually, for the first time, and Donald Trump done a good job of universally condemning what he's done. Um, he usually pays zero price for his poor behavior. And this time he definitely got his, his pee pee slapped, as they say. <laughs> um, now, how long that'll stick, I don't know. Uh, whether or not there's another event coming, I can't 
predict with accuracy. I will not be surprised if something comes. I will also be very surprised if it works, to be honest. I think now people are, you know, it's like, nah, we're not going to go for that. You lost, he lost a lot of political capital that day and he lost a lot of political capital on um, election day. So he doesn't have the juice to do a takeover and without people being like, well, that's now you're really just going to go to jail. And so, he doesn't have Twitter anymore. And he doesn't have Twitter anymore. Yeah. So he, he cost himself a lot of political capital on that day. More, more so than I would have predicted actually, because he doesn't generally pay any political price for his behavior. Not to say that something still can't go happen, but I think people have given him the, uh, yeah, we're not going to, we're not going to take that. So those who are in power, um, to include people in his party, Mitch McConnell, like they're not going to go for this. And if they, if they notice any semblance of something coming, they're going to better prepare. And again, they're going to move all the politicians away. So it's like, go take the Capitol building. It's yours. Now we're going to run the government over here. And when you settle down, we're going to arrest everybody. So my worry, actually dead serious. My worry is not now. My worry is in five years, four years. The next election. Yeah. I mean, Donald Trump's going to run again. And I mean, he might win or, or worse, we get the Donald Trump, the, the dictator that Donald Trump wants to be in an, in a, suit that is more capable of becoming said dictator. So um, there, there's a lot of baseball left to play. In fact, I have a very hot take. If you want me to, if you want if you got a 10 minute, if you got room for a 10 minute rant. Oh, please go. I got a rant. I got something you haven't heard about. Nobody's talked about this. I'm about to make some content on it. This is, I'm a, so I'm a student of history and um, I'm gonna give you this hot take. I believe that we are about 12 years into a 30 year economic revolution. That's going to change this country in maybe 35 years. We're just getting started and people are not really putting together the pieces yet, but I believe that it's um, in when history unfolds, I believe this will all become obvious in 2008. Let's flat back track to 2008. We had the global financial collapse and um, we had a split in, in inequality, a split in inequality, like, like the world never seen. That's because anytime you have a split and you have an economically volatile situation, those who are doing worse get shit on. And those who have the means to take the cheaper assets at the time of the volatility buy in cheap, and then you get the split. And so for the last 12 years, we had this, we've had this really, really egregious run in income inequality. And right away, you had one voice, excuse me, you had one movement. Well, I shouldn't say that way. Right away, you had two movements that said the exact same thing after 2008. You had the Tea Party, which was an anti-inequality movement that didn't want the government to subsidize debt. It was a no debt, stop, stop giving out bailouts to corporations. It was a, essentially it was an answer to inequality. And then you had Occupy Wall Street. They were the same message, opposite sides of the political spectrum. They lost a little bit of steam. Um, Obama becomes an office in um, 08. And because he didn't really, well, he was bought by the, by the corporation. So he didn't really address the Occupy movement that much, but Fox News fed the fires of the Tea Party for eight years. And so then let's call it, so let's, so those were the stirrings. Those were the rumblings. And then around 2015, 14, we had the same thing happen, but it was compounded because time had gone on, but the problem had not been solved. Right. Um, but you had the same thing in a louder way. You had the same message, the message, the answer to inequality. And you had it on in the same way and the same message, but you had it on opposite sides of the political party. This time it was called Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. They said the exact same thing. They said, the billionaire class is sticking it to you. We stand up for the little guy. And Donald Trump's version was, you know, the forgotten men and women where you've been outsourcing your jobs to China for 30 years. and I'm going to take care of you. It was the same message. Donald Trump happened to win, but it could have just easily been Bernie Sanders had the, in my opinion, the DNC not, um, you know, favored over to for Hillary. But that's, it is, doesn't matter. Um, now, uh, four years later, uh, my favorite part, uh, the, the, cat, the, hand, uh, the, the head of the Tea Party, Paul Ryan, gets elected. And the first thing he does is enact a $1.5 trillion unpaid tax cut and then leaves. So... <laughs> piss me off. Right. So basically what we have is we have these voices in society that are rising up and say, we have an inequality problem, but the problem is there's really not much that anybody's been able to, or even really tried to do it. Uh, Donald Trump added 8 trillion to the debt. This is not a dig on Donald Trump in that way. Cause Obama wasn't any better. 
um, tax cuts. And now we have two stimulus checks, inflation. This adds all of this adds towards inequality and it all goes on the back of the small non uh, the, the taxpayer who doesn't have ways to go around the taxes. So now we're 12 years into this, um, this Donald Trump thing, this is just the beginning. And this soft coup that he attempted is part of what you would expect from a society that is um, in debt, has high inflation, has high inequality, and has high political polarization. And this has been predicted by guys like Ray Dalio, Thomas Piketty, who wrote the very famous Capital in the 21st Century. And it was predicted by Plato 1800 years ago. So this ain't news. This ain't, but I think people lose objectivity because they're so busy bickering over the week to week. So I think uh, people that are sighing a relief who want Joe Biden, people who want Joe Biden that are sighing relief that Donald Trump's time is over are grossly underestimating the situation that is at hand. And um, the people who want Donald Trump back very well may get him. And if he gets back in office, I think there's a 0% chance that he ever leaves. He's not going to come back. Do, the Constitution says you can do two tours, two turns. So if he comes back in office, he's not going to do four years and leave. Because if he comes back and he wins, he's in forever. So one end game is that Trump comes back. What are the other end games? What are the other possibilities? Um, I think you're going to see a... I think Donald Trump is going to be the beginning of a new type of politician where... Um, you know, we're going through this 40 year postmodernist um, shift in our culture. Truth doesn't matter is uh, and, and we're seeing it become exacerbated. So I think uh, you're going to see a politician who is better at media, who is a little less polarizing, a lot scarier. And, uh, and I think people are going to continue to become polarized. So once you get another if you get a guy who's really dangerous and you get, say, all three branches of government, um, uh, it's very hard to predict what's going to happen, but you know, uh, the five stages of Plato's government was like, I figure what the first three, three or four are that, you know, oligarchy, something, something, and then democracy and then tyranny. Um, so I, I it, predicting exacts are very difficult. Uh, but I will say this history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. So do you already have your place set in Mexico or Europe? Like where's Alex Scott Felice taken off to when this happens? I, this is going to sound messed up. What's the old Chinese proverb? Um, May you live in interesting times. I think um, I think I would want to be around for it. In fact, I'm kind of sad at myself for not doing more media on on politics. I kind of would like to get into the, not fan the flame, but I would like to be a voice. I would like to be part of the revolution. And I don't mean that like in a bad way. Like I don't want to go be, I want to be, I want to be around it. I don't know that I'd run away from it. You don't want to cause worse and worse tyranny, but you want to be part of the conversation. There you go. Yes. I do not want this country to fall into tyranny and I do not want to be part of its demise. And I do not want to laugh and have a joke along the way. Like our friends, Alex Jones, who he's harmless, but also it's like, you're making it worse for no reason. Those kind of things. I don't want to be that, but I also, um, I think, uh, you know, I have a reasonable brain. I'm fairly well read and I have a, I enjoy the conflict and I have no kids. So it's like, uh, don't, if anybody has a responsibility to stick around and, and do as, and, and do my part, I, I think I would take that responsibility seriously. Alex Scott Felice, the provocateur. It's good <laughs> to have you on this quote unquote soft coup. Sounds like the beginning. We survived this one, but the future doesn't necessarily look optimistic yet. I hope we find a way to bridge that wealth gap because I, like you, feel like it is going to cause all sorts of upending of our current democratic system and cause all sorts of problems. Alex, thanks for coming on. It's been a great discussion, man. Thank you, dude. Thank you so much. Thanks. So that was pretty cool. Awesome. Yeah, hopefully that was okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was it was definitely okay. I thought we got a lot of good info out there and you know, these kind of conversations, I try, what I do is I look at a lot of your content and try to come up with original conversation that, that doesn't sound like anything else you might have done before. Mm -hmm. um, but those undertones were very clear to me in your writing. So I thought it'd be interesting to bring them out. And it didn't have to be 100% of the conversation. That's why I kind of, I tried to veer to some other things too. Um, yeah. But no, I think that's- awesome at interviewing. 
Thank you very much. I, <laughs> I think that's a big, I think that's an important part of your message. It doesn't have, it's not your whole message by any means, right? Mm-hmm. But I think your, your message is layered with those undertones. And I just wanted to bring some of those out in kind of a fluid, interesting conversation. That's why I kind of started with the Donald Trump quote, because yeah. I know for a lot of people, that was a very triggering quote and gets to some of the kind of fundamental issues of what facing personal finance as a young woman must feel like. Yes, absolutely. No, I thought it was awesome. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.